Oh, thank you, Lincoln. God is always only good, isn't he? All the time. Thank you, Lincoln. Praise be to God. Uh, what a blessing. What a blessing to be uh, with you all today. Uh, our primary text will be Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, if you turn there now. Why do bad things happen to good people? Hmm. Question's been, been for the ages. So read, he'll begin in verse 1 through verse 9. Let's talk about some bad things that happen. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Jesus began telling them this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put fertilizer in it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. You know, I hope it never happens. At least not for a long time. But uh, if there comes another national emergency, you know, the ones that we've experienced, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, uh, real tragic events, uh, if that comes, this will probably be the text that I turn to. Right here. Uh, because in all likelihood... Uh, an event such as that is going to provide us about two Sundays, about two Sundays, uh, when churches are going to burst at the seams, people trying to rationalize what just happened, then they'll resort back to their normal lives shortly after. Um, because after a catastrophic event, one of the first questions they're going to ask is, maybe there's a God who can provide us some answers. Another question they're going to ask is, maybe these Christians, maybe they know something about Him. And if they by chance visit a more liberal church that does not teach the Bible, it'll, it'll take about two weeks until they come to the conclusion that they don't have any answers. And comparatively, those who visit a church that adheres to Scripture, uh, they will discover that we find in the Bible answers. There are answers. The problem is that most people aren't going to like God's answers. So after about those same two weeks, those who are not converted by God's answer are going to grow weary in the biblically driven church. Uh, because, because like Jesus' audience of this day, they're not going to like being told that they're sinners in need of repentance. It, it's astonishing how often Jesus returns to this theme. But similar to right after 9-11... You know, churches will be full for about two Sundays. 
We'll have a narrow opportunity, folks, a narrow opportunity uh, to explain to them uh, why God uses uh, his grace through momentary crises. And uh, we, we got to be prepared to seize that day. And, and this text tells us how. Uh, it can be taught at least in two different fashions, this passage. The first paragraph can be emphasized to explain to Christians why bad things happen to seemingly good people. Or the second paragraph can be stressed to remind unbelievers that throughout human history, bad things have always happened. They've always happened. And, uh, but they aren't nearly as bad as the ultimate judgment that will come. Uh, so this passage can serve as being very sanctifying to the believer. It can also serve uh, as an evangelistic passage to the unsaved. And we're going to take the sanctification route today. Becoming more holy. Because Christians need to know uh, why God allows bad things to happen. To at least seemingly good, even if we use good in the quotes there, seemingly good people. We were reminded last week that ultimately none is good. None seek after God. That's Romans 3 verse 11. Until after the Holy Spirit initiates His divine work of regeneration. But we also recognize that most people, most people aren't as horrible as they could be. Most aren't as horrible as they could be. In fact, you know, some unbelievers, at least by worldly assessment, assessment the world would make, some unbelievers you know, become very good friends. They become our neighbors. We share a lot of common interests. Instead of for ill, some learn to use their talents to perform heart surgeries, many other professions that benefit society. They can help us fix a broken faucet. They can carry our groceries. Most have some kind of internal motive. Internal motive for doing good. It may be that their motive is to be the best doctor that they can be. To earn as much money as they can. It could be so that they enjoy a sterling reputation. That might be a motive. It could even be that some would believe that through doing good they could achieve righteousness before God. We don't need to know their motive. A friend of mine from years ago, uh, his daughter was dating a man. And he originated from a false religion from around the world. And, and the man kind of lamented that, he, he was a Christian, so he kind of lamented that his daughter was dating someone from another religion. But he did suggest at least the guy appears to be really moral. I reminded him that he must because his salvation hinged upon the point that he would do good works. So such religions, they take religion very seriously. If your salvation hinges upon the amount of good works you do, you're going to take your religion very seriously. And let's be honest, you know, I for one would far prefer to have a Mormon as a neighbor over an axe murderer, right? Yeah, good choice. Good choice. They can be moral as far as the world describes ethics. Um, And regardless of of what motive keeps people ethical, we can be thankful for it. I'm thankful for it. Anything stimulating morality is a manifestation of God's common grace, ensuring things are not yet as bad as they possibly could be. Things could always be worse leading up to the day of Noah. False religion moralizes as it pursues 
Salvation through good works. Civil law moralizes people who remain motivated to stay out of prison. Living inside of us, the Holy Spirit moralizes us through the process of sanctification as we strive to please our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who purchased us with His blood. Morality is good. Anything that moralizes is good. So what we experience in the world is that we often encounter some, some really good people. Really good people. And sometimes horrible things happen to them. Horrible things to people who are family and our friends. Why is that? You know, if God is, is all-loving and He's all-powerful, which He is all-powerful, why does He permit dreadful things to happen? Why does He allow it? And as a Christian, you may, or you will be asked this, the next time a tragic event occurs... Next time something bad happens, someone you care about is going to ask. Cancer, accidents, financial ruin, war, rape, murder, all bad things. We see disasters in our news every day. Folks, they were in the news in Jesus' day too. In chapter chapter 13, Verse 1, Luke tells us concerning uh, this occasion when he's preaching uh, to these crowds that we've previously been studying. As he preached to the crowds, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Uh, Beyond this statement, we don't have any historical record as to this event Uh, We do know from numerous um, sources that Pontius Pilate was a brutal, especially brutal man. Uh, He was a Roman governor of Judea, and he could be especially cruel. We also know that the Galileans had a reputation for being kind of rebel rousers. They liked to kind of stir things up, some of them, not all. Um, Scripture also teaches that the only location in Israel where sacrifices were permitted, was in the temple, right? Sacrifices could only be given at the temple. So if a band of Galileans has gathered together at the temple, the event in question probably occurred during one of the feasts, during one of the pilgrimage feasts where they came down from Galilee. It possibly even happened at Passover. We don't know. We just don't have enough historical evidence to be sure. And if Gentile soldiers stormed the Temple Mount and executed Jews, this was surely an ugly event, ugly massacre. And Jesus responds. Jesus responds to this event with a question. Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? No, Jesus doesn't deny that they're sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? All are sinners. He also doesn't denounce or condemn the civil authorities, believe it or not. And most important, he doesn't get sucked into an emotional, uh, uh, an emotion-laden blame game. 
Instead, he responds to a false ideology, one that asserted that those who suffer are suffering because they have sinned. Suffering because of sin. That error should have been corrected for the Jews through the teaching of the book of Job. They should have known better. If you remember the Old Testament book of Job, uh, there were friends that were just certain, they were just positive that his misfortune, his health falling ill, him losing his children, uh, uh, properties, cattle, everything being destroyed, they were just certain that that had to be an indicator that Job had some serious hidden sin. just had to be. That's what their theology told them. And, And that was the prevalent notion of Jesus' day. Misfortune is always an indicator that God is giving retribution for sin. That's what they thought. We see this also prevalent in John 9, verse 1, where Jesus passes a man that was blind from birth, or who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. File that away. When we come back to application, remember that. The works of God being displayed in him. Though that man, the the blind man, was surely a sinner. His blindness was not a consequence, was not caused by any particular sin. And Jesus asked the same concerning the Galileans in a sense. You know, do you believe that their fate, what happened to them, that horrible thing, was a result of greater sin and that it was an indication of God's judgment? Now be careful. Be careful to discern what Jesus is actually asking. What is he actually asking? Um... It does seem as though these Galileans may have provoked Pilate. They actually may have provoked him. And if so, that would constitute sin. It's wise for people when they, it's wise for us to recognize that when people provoke civil authority, spewing hatred towards authority, they are taking their aim at God. For for Romans 13 tells us there is no authority, speaking of civil authorities, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Government is a minister of God for good. What is good? Keeping the peace. Keeping the peace. Um, So don't conclude from the passage that sin doesn't have consequences. Don't go down that road. Uh, Don't conclude that this massacre wasn't incited by the Galileans. It may well have been. That's not what Jesus is suggesting. And lacking any further historical account, we don't know for certain what started it. But we do know that sin has consequences in this life. It does. Sin has consequences in this life. If a person is especially promiscuous, it is likely over time they will contract an STD. Uh, if a person habitually drives while drunk, eventually they will get arrested. 
there, there are consequences, direct consequences for sin. There, there are immediate consequences sometimes of sin. And Jesus is not saying that the fate experienced by the Galileans was not a consequence of some sin. His question is, do you suppose that the Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Follow me? The question at hand is, did their fate confirm this was God's judgment? And Jesus supplies the answer. He says, no. No. And and as we saw a couple weeks ago, uh, the word no in Greek, it's the first word in the Greek sentence. It's emphatic. Jesus is saying, absolutely no. Absolutely not. Um, But he does say in verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The described event was not God's judgment on the Galileans. But unless you repent, you will experience God's judgment. And not wanting to be misconstrued, Jesus restates the identical principle through recalling another recent event in their day. Um, This is one now that was just a completely random tragedy. Just completely random. Verse 4, Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed, were the, were, do you suppose they were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? And he states again emphatically, no. No. Uh, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice the authority with which Jesus speaks there. He is able to tell them what is or what isn't the judgment of God. Who else can do that besides God? The omniscience of Christ. Being able to declare this was not the judgment of God. You'll see why that's important in a moment. Jesus possesses divine omniscience as God in the flesh. And why does this this matter? Folks, it's because we just habitually make the same mistake today. Habitually. It is so common. So common. Probably not a person in here that isn't guilty of this, including myself, that we declare current events God's judgment. There's a hurricane that hits Florida or a wildfire that scorches California. Oh, that must be God's judgment. Jesus says, no. Don't go there. We would make the same mistake, or we do make the same mistake on, on a personal level. You know, if I were to drop dead tomorrow of a, of a major heart attack, I'm sure someone would think, well, you know what, there must have just been some hidden sin in his life. Well, that scenario is possible. But Jesus is insisting that you and I possess neither the knowledge nor the authority to conclude that concerning another person. Does sin have consequences? Yes, sin has consequences. Does God sometimes bring judgment and even immediate death upon particular individuals due to sin? Oh, again, yes, yes. 
God does so with unbelievers. Prideful King Herod. He became a diet of worms. Completely different diet of worms than Martin Luther faced, but if you know about that, you'd get it. God does so with believers. Some in Corinth had fallen sick and even died. So the fact is indisputable that sin often has immediate consequences in this life. And through sanctification and obedience, Christians strive to avoid those consequences. We don't want to experience those consequences of sin. But we in our finiteness, we're so finite. We really are. In our finiteness, we can't conclude because someone suffers a fate like, a fate like Job or experiences a tragic or an untimely death that it was God's retribution for sin. We just simply don't know. We don't know. And when we make that determination, we've seated ourselves on the throne of God. Oh, he sure got what he deserved. How do you know what he deserved? I know what I deserve. For all my sins, I deserve hell. That's what I deserve. And though the true judge stands knocking at our door, ready to suck us into eternity in a flash, a wildfire, a heart attack, a building falling, is not what that judgment looks like. That's not it. That's not it. We can't even fathom, I don't believe, we can't even fathom God's judgment upon sin. The closest picture that we can get of what the judgment of God looks like is a sinless man being stripped of his clothing being scourged with a Roman flagrum with a cat of nine tails and then being pounded to a cross. That's what God's judgment on sin looks like. The pain, the suffering, the penalty of sin. And no one here, including myself, no one here wants to ever see what that judgment of God looks like but we know there's a looming judgment. You know, recently we've uh, spent a lot of time discussing judgment. I'm not going to push that point further today. We've been there enough. Jesus simply says, I tell you, unless you repent, oh, you will all likewise perish. You will see that judgment. Not a place we want to be. And Jesus is correcting just a, a massive doctrinal error of his day, and, and it remains alive and well in our era, occurrences of tragic events, sicknesses, mass plagues, they don't certify that it's God's judgment. We don't know that. They're not opportunities for us to point the finger. They're opportunities for us to extend a hand, to reach out with compassion and display the compassion we ourselves have received from God. You know, suffering doesn't ensure God is angry. And the exact opposite logically has to be true. Experiencing wealth and prosperity does not ensure God is pleased with you. 
Logically, both have to be true. I have an illustration. I got permission to use this one. Gerald, this is a good while back now. But he had made a decision, a good decision. And uh, someone did not agree with it. And they're long gone now. It doesn't matter who. But they wrote Gerald a scathing letter about how horrible the decision was. And it was a perfectly good decision. But that person, you remember he was going through the heart problem back at that time? And he had to have the hole in his heart fixed. And that person asserted the reason that he had a heart problem is because it was God's judgment on his sin. Don't tell me this doesn't manifest itself today. We all know his bad heart was because I beat him in football that year. <laughs> My team did. My team, not just, not just me. A little prideful there, sorry. Bad heart, bad heart. See how it manifests itself? These are the conclusions we come to. We don't have any right. We're taking the place of God. We can't conclude a sickness or a tragedy is due to sin in someone's life. We need to correct this once and for all. Uh, A primary topic here that Jesus has been preaching to the crowd throughout chapter 12, as we've said, is, is a readiness for judgment. So the question naturally arises from the crowd because their mind's on judgment. You know, hey, that, that deal with the Galileans, Jesus, that whole deal, that must have been God's judgment, right? No. Or, or that falling tower of Siloam that, that j- wiped out 18 people, that's got to be, that's got to be God's judgment, right? So Jesus clarifies that just because something bad happened, Don't conclude they are greater sinners than you. But be assured of this. Death will come at some point, perhaps suddenly and unexpected. And since the fall, you know, death death has reigned. Death and disorder. uh, Death has just been the universal common denominator that we all share. It's coming. It's coming. And since Jesus has repeatedly assured it's coming... Death is coming, judgment is coming. He says, you don't need to worry about those Galileans. You need to worry about you. You need to worry about you. Um, If you have not yet, you need to repent today, folks. If you have not yet put your faith in Christ, turn from sin and turn towards Him. That's what repentance means, is a turning. Turning away from sin, turning towards Christ. If you have not yet done that, put your faith in Him, you'll perish. If something happens, you'll perish. It's time to repent. Let me leave you with a quote here from the missionary and martyr Jim Elliot. This is good stuff. Jim Elliot, if, if you remember, was one of the missionaries that went down to Ecuador back in the 50s. There's a movie made about it called End of the Spear. If, if you haven't seen it, you've got to. It's a good movie. Great Great effects, just very, very well done for a Christian film. Lots of action, uh, not hokey by any means. It's, it's top of the line. End of the spear. And, and those missionaries, Jim Elliott being one of them, Nate Saint was another, went down to Ecuador to, to share the gospel with tribes who'd never been reached. They were, they were 
horrible tribes. They went down there. And Jim Elliott, he summarizes verses 1 through 5 here that we've just been talking about. Summarizes it so well with one quick statement concerning repentance. Elliot said, when it comes time to die, make sure that all you have left to do is die. Is that good? Don't wait. Don't put off repentance. Be ready. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait until you've pulled out on Becker in front of a Mack truck. Don't wait, folks. God's mercy is right here today. Um, Jesus illustrates a state of unpreparedness, beginning in verse 6 with a parable of a fig tree. Among many of the Old Testament prophets, Israel is, is portrayed as a fig tree. It was emblematic of Israel, the nation. Uh, but here the parable is applied to individuals as well in this passage. Jesus begins the story like this, the parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he didn't find any. You'll notice that the fig tree had been planted in a vineyard, and that that vineyard had been cared for by a keeper of the vineyards. You know, unlike a wild tree, within the garden, this tree would have, would have benefited from uh, advantageous conditions, good conditions, favorable conditions. And symbolic of God, the man comes looking for fruit, but, but there is none. He disapproves. His disapproval indicates that the fig tree must have been in the garden long enough where there should have been some fruit by now. So the man says to the keeper of the vineyard, Behold, for three years I've been coming. I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? We've been studying the chronology of Jesus' life as we progressed here from Luke. About how long do you remember Jesus has been ministering, a public ministry in Israel at this time? Almost three years. And due to the absence of fruit, you know, the man says, cut it down. It's just wasting space in my garden. That's all it's doing. And what a picture of God the Father and his patience towards Israel, who, who for centuries now God has been, has been delaying ultimate punishment. Yet he's nurtured Israel with his word and, and his prophets for centuries. And, and God has placed them in a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a good land. It's called the promised land. And uh, now he's even revealed to them his own precious son and they're still not bearing any fruit the nation's still not bearing fruit and the vineyard keeper replied let it alone sir for for this year too until i dig around it and and put in fertilizer and if it bears fruit next year fine but if not cut it down cut it down i wouldn't get too allegorical on the fertilizer, digging around, all those other things. It's, it's just a parable. But now just weeks away, Christ is, is in the shadow of the cross. He's not far now. I mean, maybe three or four months, probably at most. 
It's clear for Israel there's just a little time. There's just a little time. Uh, was collapse of the tower, was that God's judgment? Oh, emphatically no. But unless you repent, you will see the judgment. You will all perish. You know, America is not Israel. We teach that clearly enough. But we live in a nation where the gospel is proclaimed openly on radio, on television, Bibles. They're available for free anywhere. If you need one, we'll gladly provide you with a nice Bible. Um, Still the best-selling book of all time, I think. And and if you're in a church today, you know, you can't deny that, that God has made conditions favorable for your belief. Can't deny that. And people have been playing church for a long time. The fact that you and I have been spared the misfortunes that we see in verses 1 through 5, that the tower hasn't fell on us, some other tragedy hasn't fell on us, it doesn't imply that we're pleasing God. It merely indicates you might have a little more time. A little more time to repent and bear fruit in your life. Just one more important note before application. Don't mistakenly conclude in verse 4 that Jesus proposes there weren't worse culprits than others. I, I, I read a bonehead article that proposed that that was Jesus' point in this passage. I wadded it up and threw it away. No, I didn't because I was reading it online and I just couldn't wad it up. But the point was proposed that this concludes that some sins aren't greater than others. That can't be reconciled to the balance of Scripture, as we've already learned, and we'll continue to learn in Luke as we go forward. Some sins are greater in magnitude. Therefore, they will face a greater judgment in eternity. You know, if there, had not, if there were not lesser and greater offenses before God, offenses of sin, when 1 Corinthians chapter 5 commands the church to expel the immoral brother, We'd have to throw all of us out. There wasn't any difference in sin. I suppose the last guy guy standing, if he had a belt on, you know, could grab himself and kind of heave himself out the door. But the whole idea of church discipline demands that there are certain offenses that God says must be dealt with immediately. Um, Magnitude of sins is not at all what Jesus is addressing here. His point is that when something tragic happens, we don't have the knowledge to conclude that was the judgment of God. Don't automatically conclude when something bad happens to your neighbor, you're such a better person than they are. Uh, What is it then? What are tragedies? Folks, they're, they're a natural consequence of living in a fallen and unredeemed, a cursed a disastrous world. An unredeemed creation. Everyone who inhabits this earth thus is susceptible to them. To tragedies, plagues, famines, accidents, death. If some of the finest Christians throughout history have suffered immensely with disease, depression, hunger, even death, Death, Jim Elliot and those missionaries. Some, 
even suffered shipwreck, believe it or not. That man, the Apostle Paul, wrote this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him, that is God, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. That's where we are today. Slavery to corruption. It will be set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, Paul writes, that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan. Do you groan? Some days I groan. We groan, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Really, the redemption of all creation. New heavens, new earth. Uh, Tragedies, earthquakes, wars, cancers, automobile accidents. They characterize that God's creation is still under the curse. We're still under the curse. And we eagerly await the return of Christ, a day where the sons of God, that is, those who believe in Him, who put their trust in Him, will be revealed. Then we will know who is in and who is out, right? Are you in? Are you in? Amen. Amen. I see some nods. There are some good things to suffering. Good, you might ask. Yeah, yeah. All things still work for good. They do. Let me just share a few positives that arise from bad things that happen to good people. Then we'll share in the Lord's Supper. God allows bad things to happen to Christians to test the genuineness of our faith. Not that God needs to know anything. He already knows. He's given the gift of faith. But we need to know. We need to know. And the trials we face confirm to us our genuineness. Throughout Christian history, you know, the church has been purified through persecution and through testing. Peter calls, calls it withstanding the proof of your faith. How do you know you're a Christian? Because when that persecution comes, when that trial passes, you're still here. It's the proof of your faith. We know. We know. That's 1 Peter 1 verse 7. God also knows bad, uh, allows bad things to happen to Christians to reveal the affections of our heart, that which we love. You know, can you imagine if we really loved this world? Can you just imagine if we really loved this world? You know, I am, I am immensely grateful that God brings so much testing and anguish so that I don't mistakenly fall in love with this world. Our our eternal hope, it can't be found on this earth. It can't be. That's eventually going to go. You're you're eventually going to lose health or finances. The end is going to come. You can't find your hope in this world. Uh, Well, Paul said, as Christians, if we have hoped in this world alone, in this life alone, we're to be most pitied. I am so grateful that God brings trials and testings 
and loss, loss of health, loss of uh, resources, pain, anguish, so that we don't have a don't have a strong affection to stay in here. Wish this world had an ejection seat. Third, God allows bad things to happen to Christians so he has an opportunity to comfort us with his compassion. You know, you're never as close to God as when he's carrying you through uh, a tragic circumstance. Many of you have learned that and, and are, are, are experiencing that today. Those, momentary, uh, those moments of affliction. And when you combine that, God's comfort to us, when you combine this divine source of comfort we find another reason why God allows bad things to happen to unbelievers, not just believers. Our compassion displayed during another's anguish, an unbeliever's anguish, it's evangelistic, folks. It's evangelistic. It is a tool. It is a vessel for God's mercy. So we first have to be tested. We first have to suffer so we can understand what they're going through. How, how could we understand the pain of someone losing a child if those amongst us hadn't lost children or parents or health? Suffering prepares us to minister to a lost world. From our scripture reading earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul assures us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Get this. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1. From that same passage, another reason God allows us to be afflicted is so that we don't trust in self. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Affliction outside of our control leaves us nowhere else to turn than to trust in God. It's in our moment of weakness where we turn to Him. One more, quickly. God allows bad things to happen to prepare Christians for greater, greater usefulness. That is James chapter 1, verses 2-4. to four. We rejoice in our sufferings. And uh, the more we are tested, the more we are refined by trials, the less we'll trust in self, the less we'll nurse our affections for the world, and the more effective we will be, the more focused we will be on the kingdom of God. Getting our sights off this world and focus on the kingdom to come. As you can see, the king, uh, suffering has many, many benefits for the kingdom. And God receives glory from that. But uh, calamities, afflictions, they're, they're not God's way of singling out especially wicked people. Um, 
You know how we can know this for certain? The, the most holy, the most righteous, the only sinless man who ever lived, Christ himself, suffered on a cross. It wasn't anything that he deserved. How can we think that suffering is, is always an indication that it's something that they deserved? He was completely innocent. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at this time, I'm going to ask the men to come forward to uh, prepare the Lord's table.